0: The Society of Economic Geologists is thrilled to be hosting the SEG 2024 conference from the 27th to the 30th of September in Windhoek, Namibia a country known for its spectacular geology and unique ore deposits. You can find out more at segweb.org seg-2024 for all the conference themes, dates, workshops, field trips, and more. Abstracts are now open until the 22nd of April. So come join us in Vinhook for what promises to be a geologic adventure in a country that is leading the way in mineral resource sustainability on the African continent. See you there!
1: and welcome back to Discovery to Recovery, where we bring you geoscience and technology stories from the world of ore deposits. This series is created in partnership with Sequent and the Society of Economic Geologists, and actually, our very last episode is coming out this Monday. It's a finale episode featuring Dick Silito and the game-changing science and our understanding of porphyry copper deposits, so be sure to listen to it. Your hosts are Ann Thompson from PetroScience Consultants, Hallie Kievel from Cobalt Metals, and myself, Nicole Doucette from Sequent. I'll be hosting this episode. I'm a science multimedia specialist at Sequint, and actually this is the last episode that I'm producing on behalf of Sequent. So thank you so much if you have stayed with us for this entire series. It has been an absolute blast to make. So back to last week's episode where my co-host Hallie spoke to some stellar geologists about structure. This week, we're continuing that conversation, but from the technology side of things. I'm sure you've heard the old saying, a picture is worth a thousand words. This is sometimes true. And sometimes a picture is worth more than a thousand words. It's worth heaps of geoscience data.
2: My name is Federico Arboleda. I'm the founder of Imago. Imago started three years ago. And our purpose is to manage geoscientific imagery.
1: So if you've worked in exploration geology, then you'll know that a ton of time is spent taking photos. Maybe you're taking photos while core logging or at the outcrops you found. But what usually ends up happening to those photos?
2: So, so basically, you know, the, what the company does is they take the pictures, they take them out of the SD card from the camera, and then they rename them, actually. And then they put them on C drive where they go and and die, and they're kind of used as insurance, right? They do it more as a way of ensuring that, you know, if the core is lost or if they need to verify or validate something sporadically, they'll do it. But because it's so hard, the workflows around going to that C drive and and getting that image because it's so voluminous, it it just makes it very difficult.
1: Federico is very passionate about ensuring that these photos add value to a geologist's workflow and don't just become forgotten in the C drive. Part of the challenge is that photos fall into the category of unstructured data, which can be harder for companies to leverage.
2: In the kind of data world, there's two types of categories of data. One is structured data and the other one is unstructured data. The structured data are those colors, surveys and assays. And then the unstructured data is this imagery, voice, video.
1: And it was because of his experience as a geologist logging core that he realized there was a gap in the market when it came to database management for imagery.
2: Well, I started my career as a geologist logging in in Africa, and I quickly found that I wasn't a, a very good geologist, <laughs> so they stuck me on the computer. And I guess after that, I, I always was had an affinity to computers and worked for Acquire Technology Solutions, which is a data management company in Chile. From there, I guess I just grew within the organization and became the director of development in Perth, Australia for them, research and development. and uh, here I am. Many, many years afterwards doing database management, but for imagery now, because I had that experience from the data management or database side of structured data, uh, the colors, the surveys, the assays, I had seen that there was a gap with imagery, right? We could do everything with color surveys, assays, and geology very well and structured data, but when they would come and ask us about televiewer data or hyperspectral data, there would be a gap in the market. And we identified that, you know, early on in in our ideation of Imago and thought that would be a valuable challenge to tackle.
1: Can you give me an example of a specific workflow that you would use Imago for?
2: So the most common workflow that we're known for is managing core imagery. So geologists currently take pictures of the core boxes, right? They box their core and then they take pictures and then they use it during modeling. So the the basic workflow is you capture the imagery by connecting the camera to the computer, and Imago manages that camera directly. Uh, we create a centralized catalog of that imagery in the cloud, from where we serve it to Leaffrog and other modeling packages, and ultimately, you know, you can then transform that data with machine learning to extract information from it, as the color of the image, or how much sulfites there are. Or, you know, what is it? What mythology is it? So that, that's kind of a very overall workflow that uh, describes what we
1: do. So when it comes to solutions like Imago that work in the unstructured data space, we're not reinventing the wheel.
2: All we're doing is we're just reusing components and put them in, in a workflow that just works for the geoscience. Because if I were to take, you know, Google Photos and put my core imagery in there, well, although Google Photos could do a lot of it, it could manage the imagery, it could present it, and so on, still doesn't fit the framework of what that geology wants. Geologist wants to do, right? So it's about using those generic tools, but making it work for that particular work. In terms of specific things, you know, things that we do are, for example, creating pyramids off the images. So you look at Google Earth. Google Earth is so fast when you actually view an image. A satellite image is because it's only presenting on your screen that area of the picture that you're looking at so you, although you could have terabytes of images in Google Earth you're only being presented with you know that tile or that small rectangle or area that you're viewing which is only maybe 400 Kb or, or you know very small inside so it also makes it very fast in its presentation
1: and in terms of specific fields that are pushing unstructured data processing to the forefront
2: what's happening right now and that's the cool thing is that it's we're all living it and it's machine learning mm. right so the way that you're seeing machine learning detect faces in airports or the way that you're seeing maybe machine learning helping us with cancer studies by inspecting an image and then defining the characteristics of the probability of that person the, you know having cancer or not, the way that we're seeing imagery and machine learning being used with automobiles in driverless cars, it's exactly the same techniques and the same technology that's being transferred to what we're doing because to the algorithm, a face, a cancer you know scan or a driverless environment car it's the same thing. it's the same exact algorithm that you can utilize across all of those three fields. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then porting it to, here's a rock, tell me where the sulfides are in that rock. Or tell me in the case of geotechnical aspect is, tell me where the crack is in that rock. Then it just transfers very well. It's just packaging it up in a way that you can actually utilize it for that purpose.
1: It's a little bit terrifying, some of these technologies with the image processing and what are they calling it? The deep fakes where they're putting, you know, faces on... (laughs) Oh, other people and yeah. Anyways, this is a much nicer use, I think. Talking specifically about structural geology, what technologies are you seeing that are revolutionizing that space?
2: I went to PDAC this year and if you looked around the floor, there was 40 scanning boxes. Maybe I'm exaggerating, but everyone had a scanning box. I remember like two years back, it was drones. Everyone had a drone. (laughs) (laughs) And so there's just so many sensors coming to the market. I I am fascinated though to see how those sensor boxes are going to progress to really solve the problem of the geotechnical characterization core. Because there's a disconnect there. So ultimately what we're trying to do is we're saying here's a sensor, if you scan your core, I'm going to tell you where those cracks are and therefore I'm going to be able to characterize some parameters of that core. The problem is, is that we're not thinking of it in a workflow or in a kind of beginning to end workflow process, if I might say, because the first thing that the guy does at the drill when he actually drills the core is he takes a hammer and he breaks it to put it into a box. So I'm measuring cracks, but now I broke it and I put it into a box. So is that crack that I use with the hammer a real crack or is it a crack that I made? You see the problem?
1: Right. Yeah, yeah.
2: So, so after a lot of kind of thought, can we actually have a sensor that helps us really characterize the core? At the end of the day, there's still going to be a human being helping us characterize that core. Mm-hmm. And so now I go back and I think, well, shucks, if there's going to be a human being there. Why am I spending all this money and effort in characterizing it in an automated way where I can't automate it? So instead of that, maybe what we should be doing, in, in my opinion, in the industry is giving that geologist the tools to make his job easier. So it's giving him, for example, a notebook. Think of it like he's there with his tablet and here comes up a picture and it actually predicts what are the, where the cracks are. And then the person looks at the crack and says, well, this is made by a hammer or not made by a hammer. And he clicks on it and he makes it, you know, he tells the system what it is. And now we can automate it after that. So it just makes that person's job a lot quicker and easier. And we help that human being be more productive rather than mm-hmm. saying we are gonna, we can take that human being out of the equation. Because in my opinion at this point, it, it's just not possible. But by digitizing the process, you add a lot of value. Because remember, before the guy who was doing that job, he had a tape measure, and he was measuring where those cracks were with a tape measure. Well, with a tape measure, you can't reproduce that. You have to go back out and actually measure the core. Now, if you have a picture and you're drawing on that picture where those cracks are, well, you can reproduce it. And so we know as well that as science advances, you might want to recharacterize that with different parameters. So maybe in the future in 15 years, when people are looking at this, they might say, Yeah, four from 2010. Let's recharacterize it with this new algorithm. And because you have the source data, then you can go ahead and do that much quicker.
1: In terms of other technologies revolutionizing the structural geology space, Federico also talks about optical and acoustic televiewers.
2: What televiewer does is basically you put a sensor in the hole and you send either an optical signal. Or you send an acoustic signal. And as you're kind of sending that signal, you can actually characterize where that crack is in the ground. So now no longer is it on the piece of core you got out of the surface, it's actually in situ under the ground.
1: And and does that sort of solve the um hammer problem?
2: Yeah, it solves the hammer problem, exactly so. But yeah. then the problem is that when you're <laughs> in broken ground, you know, like everything has a problem, right? That's the <laughs> it's like, but But then the problem is that you 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 can lose your probe. For example, if your hole is not competent, so now you got a three hundred thousand. I don't know how much they cost, but they're expensive. So, So so that's the challenge there. But it's being run more commonly. They're expensive instruments, and there's a lot of opportunity with them.
1: In terms of structural geology observations and data, why do you think it's important that we're capturing and analyzing that information?
2: I can't tell you the number of times that I've seen a consultant going back to the site and saying, we need to review the core photography because we need to ensure that the geotechnical characterization was done right, because we're expanding the pit and we didn't consider this. And for the new economic study, we need to be assured that the competency of the core is there to be able to you know designed this pit the way that we're doing. And in essence, I guess in summary what I'm saying is that data is telling you if you can make a pit or an underground working feasible at a particular cost. So there you have it, right? There's no mine unless you can make that estimation or characterization to be correct. And this is the the founding data that allows you to define that. And Time after time after time, you have to go back and review the data and make sure that you know, your characterization was correct because your plans change. And so having the original observations and measurements are fundamental. And that's why people don't throw away the core and they place so much care in, in keeping that original data there for us to maybe reevaluate it in the future.
1: What do you think the ideal geoscience future would be in terms of structural geology and the technologies in that space?
2: I I, I think that something that would be really cool and really need to see in the future is this combination of the human being being supported by the technology to really optimize what they're doing. I think that there's a lot of things that can be done with sensors. I think that sensors are dropping in price and so we can use them in in new creative ways that we haven't in the past. You know, voice for example, is something that's just prime for usage in our industry and we're not using it very well. Video as well. So I think that there's just gonna be a revolution in the way this new types of data are acquired and presented to us when we're doing our jobs to make it easier. So what does that future look like? Maybe it's Alexa for Geotech. You know, maybe, maybe it's the, the driverless mouse or the driverless type measure over the core that, that gives us the distances. I don't know what exactly it's gonna look like, but damn, I'm excited about what's happening.
1: Once again, that was Federico Abuelera from Imago. Next up, a story about digital data collection. Okay, so I would guess that most of the people listening to this podcast are using their phones or tablets to capture data every day. Maybe you're capturing photos, which we now know is unstructured data, or maybe you're using apps to get food delivered or chat with your friends and family. Either way, it was only a matter of time before digital data collection started in structural geology.
0: I am Rohanna Gibson. I'm a structural geologist with Terrain Geoscience. Uh and Geoscience specializes in structural geology and rock mechanics, as well as doing geospatial data services, so we do a lot of uh, UAV or drone surveys. I got into structural geology from a background in geological mapping, and I enjoyed the kind of combination of putting together spatial puzzles and getting paid to hike around the mountains as well, and I feel like it's uh, a skill that's really critical for mineral exploration and mining but is generally underdeveloped and a lot of people struggle with. So structural data collected in the field, traditionally, you know, over the last 200 years, was really done the same way where we were collecting notes on paper and pencils in our field notebooks and drawing on on maps on our map clipboards. I'd say in the last 20 years, there's been kind of increasingly common that people are using digital field data collection.
1: And what kind of advances are you seeing in this Area. Technology
0: seems to be advancing kind of slowly. Like adoption to technology uh, seems to have been gradual in, in structural field data collection. And I think that's tied into a couple factors. Like, for one, it's a factor of scale where we don't tend to collect as much surface structural data as you would uh, drill hole data, for example. So there's less, you know, less total data collected. So a bit less motivation to, to uh, collect in a digital platform or a specialized digital platform. And, and as well, structural field data can be really like heterogeneous, so it can be really mixed in terms of what data sets you're collecting and what secondary data you want to collect. And so it can be really challenging to have kind of a rigid, codified database as opposed to you know when people have traditionally kind of made qualitative descriptions in their field notebooks. It can be challenging to transition to to digital world that way.
1: It's codifying geological knowledge that seems to be the difficult transition that everyone's trying to make right now
0: yeah it's really challenging like for one if you're trying to pick a rock type and you're scrolling through a pick list of like 500 different rock types that's useless you know but then other times you can go too far the other way where you're like oh well it's a basaltic andesite and that's not an option in my drop down so what do I do and and so it's really challenging to, to codify structural data and And because it's really depending on, like, your structural setting and your tectonic environment, your metamorphic grade, like, all of these factors can uh, really affect the data that you're collecting. And so it can be hard to have a one-size-fits-all database for collecting uh, field data.
1: And what sort of options are people seeing in terms of digital structural field data collection?
0: There's a lot of options. Like, in terms of hardware, you see people using kind of commercial smartphones or tablets as well as commercial ruggedized tablets, so things that are weatherproof and shockproof and such. And then even things like Windows-based tablet platforms, so stuff like the Surface tablet.
1: Let's talk about the different software options that are available then for people.
0: Yeah, so some of the more basic geological digital data collection apps are essentially geological compasses, so replacing a Brunton or a Silva geological compass. So essentially, they use uh, the sensors in the smartphone or a tablet, and so you can align the, your phone with a, with a plane or line that you're trying to measure in the field and get a strike and dip or trend and plunge using those. So Field Move is a kind of a, by Petex, is an example of this kind of app, but it also has an integrated mapping function. So you can build a geologic map, or you can look at uh, secondary data sets on your map, collect structural data and then as well collect uh, photos and take notes in the field. I find field move is like it's really good, but it's pretty rigid. like you can't customize your tables so you can't add columns or attributes to your tables. So it's pretty limited I guess, in, in the types of data that you can collect. So often people use more GIS specific apps. So there's a collector by the ArcGIS app for example. Or there's mapped or QField, which is associated with QGIS. And in those kind of GIS-style apps, they are set up so that you kind of build a package on your desktop computer in GIS, and then you can so you can add on your geophysics, your satellite images, your geochem data, and then essentially take that with you in the field. Collect any kind of structural or geological data during your traverse, but then you can also refer to data uh, georeference datasets uh, while you're while you're out in the field.
1: And so what kind of workflows are people using this for?
0: So if you think about traditional like paper mapping, essentially you're looking at a GPS or figuring out where you are manually, then you're l- reading an outcrop, taking measurements, writing them down in your notebook, yourself on the map, drawing those points and your structures on that paper map and uh, and then continuing on whereas with the digital field data collection, you're uh, essentially you can have your G- GPS linked to your tablet or your phone. So you look at it, it shows you where you are. You can turn layers on and off so you can see, okay, where am I compared to the, this mag lineament I'm trying to target? And then you can essentially either collect a geological structure using your phone or use a compass and then enter your data in on a uh, drop-down forms on a tablet or phone. And then at the end of the day, you essentially just sync your a GIS app with your desktop GIS and make sure that your data are, are happy. And then you can usually that process would take me about half an hour, an hour to sync and and just check through all of my data set from the day. And then I, I'm free to kind of start thinking about bigger picture things or where I'm going tomorrow or drawing cross sections, etc.
1: I'm curious about best practices you have from the software side of things, but also from the hardware side of things. So I'm imagining, you know, taking out like an iPad or something into the field where it might be really cold or rainy, you know, and you, you've got to sort of protect the, the digital asset that you have.
0: And I think you've hit on one of the biggest challenges with digital field data collection. There's a lot of digital challenges, like battery life can be a real problem. Oh, yeah. S- and seeing your screen, if it's sunny or rainy. Yeah. And then there's certainly limitations in terms of temperature, so whether that's too hot or too cold can crash digital devices, obviously. In terms of best practices, personally, like, it kind of depends which way you go, because there are a lot of people will use kind of just standard iPhone or, or I use like an Android tablet, for example, and then just put a ruggedized case on there. The alternative is you can buy specialized, rugged, weatherproof tablets and phones. But personally, I think they're, they're often quite expensive. And then considering the fact that how fast technology moves nowadays, it seems yeah. like it would get redundant a bit quickly relative to the price. But it mm-hmm. really depends on who's using it and, and how much you're using it.
1: Yeah, <laughs> And I imagine that, you know, the programs you're using, they do probably save everything to the cloud in case, you know, you were to get rain or dirt on your on your tablet and it broke.
0: Yeah. So data integrity can be a, or data backups can can be challenging for sure in the field. And, and you say you suggest saving it to the cloud. But then often if you're on satellite Internet and you're trying to save right. GIS data sets, it can be challenging over uh, questionable Wi-Fi when everyone's trying to check Facebook at the same time. So I should ideally have 3 or 4 versions of the data on a hard drive, the computer, the tablet and then the SD card within the tablet. Another one with this on the software side of things is just data syncing because depending often the GIS apps you're syncing data between your tablet and your desktop version and that'll overwrite data. So it can be really important to have backups of your field data, especially if you have multiple users for example, you don't want somebody overwriting your your data set and deleting each other's data. I think other best practices, like having the kind of iterative database and data collection system can be really helpful. So just making, especially if you have multiple users, ensuring that everybody is calling everything the same names and using the same terminology can really help down the road.
1: And in terms of specific case studies you'd want to share, are there any that come to mind?
0: I use a Q field system on a tablet for geological and geotechnical mapping. So one example I have is doing two weeks of geological mapping in Northwest Territories, where essentially I had the geophysics and geochemistry data on my tablet. And so essentially you can be at an outcrop and measure a feature, a look at how that compares to, to your Aromag data, for example, and then selectively, you know, aim your traverse to, to hit a, an outcrop with good assay grades. So it can it can really make traversing a lot more effective. And then and uh, you can kind of target previous data sets, or you can identify features of interest on your computer before you head out, and then uh, go directly to them using those uh, devices. So
1: QField is open source, correct?
0: Yeah, so QField's an open source app based on QGIS, which is an open source GIS platform. So I I really like it for, I'm a big fan of open source software and it's free and it's really functional, but that being said, it does have uh, limitations. If you're not familiar with, with QGIS, it can have a bit more of a learning curve than other commercial software options.
1: So if someone wanted to get started with Qfield, is there any specific place you would point them as to where they can get started, especially if they're not familiar with open source software?
0: Yeah, if you hadn't ever worked with open source software, I would just start with QGIS tutorials and kind of work through, like learn how to work, use QGIS. And then, I I mean, if you're wanting to move into Qfield and you aren't experienced with, you know, uh, any kind of QGIS or working through open source software problems, it can be pretty challenging.
1: I'm popping in here to say that Rana actually wrote a great article on QField, which you can actually find from her LinkedIn page. It's called "Tablet Geologizing: Review of QField for Geologic Mapping." You also mentioned something I thought was pretty pertinent in your article, which is that you know because it's open source and there isn't sort of a dedicated support. Uh, team that you can call if something goes wrong. If you were using QField and you have a question or something uh, happens with the app and you've hit a bug, what steps would you recommend to sort of get people back on track?
0: Often you kind of develop a network of people that also use QField and so that can be really helpful to, to ask other people when they've had issues with it. And there is a fair bit of community of QField, but then using it for geology purposes is a bit more specialized so there's going to be things that you run into that other people haven't needed to do yet. So often it starts with just problem solving and trying, you know, just trying different things out, researching anything you can. So the QField user guide is really useful. And then often there are forums on Reddit for example and Stack Exchange have have useful forums where users will post questions and then other users answer and then there's kind of an upvoting system for whether a question was answered or not. So you're kind of relying on other nerds to, to help you out <laughs> a lot of the time. There isn't like a convenient 1-800 number where someone is obliged to help you. So it's a bit yeah. more legwork involved.
1: We actually covered open source software development in episode five. So take a listen to that if you missed that one. For people who maybe aren't convinced that they should be collecting this data, why is it important that we're collecting structural geology data and collecting it in a way that's you know like reusable and scalable for the future
0: well structural geology data and in general is really important in mineral exploration and mining i mean ultimately you know you kind of have these dots these points of data on the surface and from drill holes and structural is data is a way that we connect those dots so we're essentially trying to figure out which way our mineralization goes so we can target more or if you're trying to determine what the geometry of an ore body is, or predicting how a rock's going to break from, from a geotechnical perspective, that's all using structural data. so it can provide a really essential information for, for all of those applications. I think it, collecting structural data on digital devices and having kind of systematic data collection methods is going to be really helpful moving forward. You know, Obviously, we're all looking at, at digital maps nowadays, and so having that data in some kind of usable format as opposed to a strike and dip symbol on a PDF map, that's really hard to, to integrate into a greater picture or project data set. Uh, whereas if you have some kind of digital data format, if you're incorporating it into your GIS map or your three-dimensional model, it's, it's obviously a lot easier to work with if we have kind of standardized digital data collection methods for structural data.
1: Once again, that was Rohana Gibson from Terrain Geoscience. Our last story today is on oriented core data and how and why you should use it in your projects.
3: Hi, everybody. I'm Chris Gallagher. I'm president of Rogue Geoscience, a geologic consulting company based in Kimberley, British Columbia.
1: So let's talk specifically about oriented core data. So can you explain to me, first of all, on a basic level, what it is.
3: It's basically a system which you implement on the drill rig, and it lets you orient that drill string in three dimensions. And from that, once you get it back up into the core shack, or at least on the surface of the earth, you can then take absolute structural orientation measurements of whatever features you're interested in that you may think are important to controlling the distribution or the geometry of your ore deposit.
1: Why is it important that we're capturing that data?
3: In almost every deposit type or model in the world, structure plays a very key part in controlling that distribution of your ore deposits, as well as uh, the geometry of them. Are they flat lying? Are they vertical? Etc. Cetera, Etc. Cetera. And so, understanding those structural controls is is critical to either exploring for additional resources or just defining those resources through a drill program. And again, what Oriented Core lets you do is collect data in the subsurface. This is particularly important in deposits, blind deposits that are either deep down or you don't have any outcrop on the surface where you can collect additional data
1: are a lot of people collecting oriented core data currently right now.
3: I don't think as many people are collecting it as there should be in the industry. Certain groups are are it's a mentality thing. Certain groups really see the value in it and other groups just aren't really that interested in that sort of sort of data. To me, I feel I'm a structural geologist by by training. I obviously feel that it's, it's critical on pretty much any deposit that you're looking at. That being said, historically, at least from the data sets that we've reviewed, that oriented core data tends to be some of the worst quality data that's collected in the field.
1: Wow. And do you know why that is?
3: The main issue is there's a lot of sources of error to collecting this data. And a lot of the time, most of the crews that are working the projects and collecting that data aren't fully aware of those sources of error and how to to rectify them
1: so if people are looking to improve and to sort of rectify their collection methods for oriented core data what types of things would you be suggesting for them
3: you know there's there's four or five classic errors that you see both being made at the drill rig as well as in the core shack and if, if you're not monitoring the quality of that data, you're not going to notice till you get till the program's wrapped up and then it's too late.
1: And so can you actually list off those like four to five common mistakes off the top of your head right now?
3: Yep, sure can. So again, the, the majority of these errors are occurring at the rig because that's where the the core is actually being oriented and marked in an extremely best case scenario you would actually have a geo or a geotechnician sitting at the rig marking that oriented core. But the number one issue you'll always see is one drill helper marking the bottom of the core, one drill helper marking the top of the core. If you have a nice integrated database, you can plot a stereo net up and color code your day shift versus your night shift measurements, and it becomes quickly apparent what's going on there. When it comes to the driller themselves, there's a number of common errors. Probably the most common is this, every run your oriented core system needs to be calibrated and commonly they will calibrate it before the tool is tightened or set with the drill rod. And that causes a bunch of large 60 degree to 100 degree random error in your in your data at the bottom of the hole most systems work on a timing system and the drillers required to wait a certain amount of time before they can break or snap the core off and bring it back up and a lot of drillers get confused they think that it's okay to break the core whenever they still wait that time but they've broken the core too soon and then the, the tools taken a measurement. And again, all of a sudden you see your, your data is off by 80 degrees from one run to the next. There's always, you know, loose core shoes and that sort of thing, which you can't do much about. You get minor rotation of your core as it's being hauled up from out of the hole. There's not much you can do with that. Typically those are smaller errors that you see in the range of like 10 degrees to 30 degrees. And I'd say those are the major ones once you move into the core shack itself, you know, there's there's the quality of the line being drawn, how much confidence you have in terms of putting the core all back together and drawing a keel on it. Those sorts of errors again are usually in the 10 to 20 degree range. And then finally, once the geo gets in there and starts measuring actual orientations, you have you know, a little bit of error there, but typically it's an order of magnitude smaller than the error you see at the rig or while drawing the keel itself.
1: Yeah, that's great. And then were there any other best practices you wanted to talk about? I mean,
3: one thing that I found that really really improves your overall data quality and this is true for anything in any job is is letting the the drill crew showing them what you're doing with that data. If it's if it's just a like an abstract Thing that they need to to do, and they have no idea why they're doing it, what it's used for, or why it's important. It's just the nature of things. They're going to take less care when it comes to getting those that those oriented core measurements. Whereas, you know, if if you if you pull out a three D model and show them those the measurements that you've taken down the hole from some of the holes they've drilled, you know, almost always they're really interested in it. They start seeing the importance of that data and. They just take that little bit of extra care required to get, you know, as perfect as possible oriented core data.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a really good point. It's easy to forget sometimes that, you know, it's really nice to know why you're doing the work you're doing. I think that gives a lot of people meaning. I know myself included.
3: Yeah, exactly.
1: Any other best practices you wanted to bring up?
3: To properly run an oriented core program it requires quite a bit of resources and in in our recommendation is is to typically have one additional person on the crew who's overseeing the data collection at the rig QAQCing seeing that data and then probably measuring that data as well so it's that's that's where a lot of programs fall short Oriented core just gets thrown in there, and there's no additional resources added to deal with this extra data collection. That being said, you can you can be quite selective in terms of the data that you collect, and that has a significant impact on reducing the amount of resources required to collect that data. But it's it's that classic thing: it's it's quality over quantity. We we will review some projects where there are thousands and thousands and thousands of measurements, and we can immediately see they're all erroneous. Like they're wrong. Once we QAQC the the core itself. So be selective. Once you get a good data set, review it carefully and ask yourself, okay, so how important is this information? Is it telling us anything that we didn't know already? And how much effort or how many resources are we required to put towards collecting this data? Like 80% of the time you're collecting information or taking measurements, you shouldn't be in the first place. So that's why it's taking a lot of time.
1: Yeah, it's that classic more data is not better data kind of situation that a lot of people in the industry end up in where they're just collecting tons and tons of data without necessarily doing the right things to make sure it's the right data for later on. So in terms of the technologies that you're using for these workflows, what are you using and what would you recommend for people starting out?
3: Well, I guess the first thing that comes to mind is in terms of new and emerging technology is Reflex's IQ Logger. This is a a system that utilizes a laser to help you line up a mouse contraption and orient your your planar and linear fabrics in three dimensions extremely rapidly. We find them very efficient. It's, it's a really beneficial system because, as I mentioned, that feedback loop, you can plot or the data that you're collecting is plotted on a stereo net in real time. So if you're measuring bedding planes and everything's been sitting around in the exact same orientation, and then all of a sudden your bedding kicks 50 degrees in another direction, when you take a measurement, that's that's a flag. It may be right, you may have gone across a fault or, or there's a fold or something like that, but at least it gives you that heads up to go, you know, think about that measurement and decide whether it makes sense or not. We don't necessarily find it that much more accurate than more traditional uh, methods of measuring oriented core with the cylinder or a goiniometer, Except, it when, except when you're dealing with lineations. So measuring planes the traditional way with a cylinder is fairly straightforward. Measuring lineations on other planar fabrics can be fraught with error. And we find the IQ logger is extremely, or a lot more accurate when it comes to taking those sorts of measurements. It's a great system for sure. And that's something we notice not a lot of people are using. We obviously develop our own software as well when it comes to collecting oriented core QAQC data in the core shack. We have a sort of, I call it a choose your own adventure system, which sort of takes takes away all the guesswork in terms of conventions and that sort of thing when recording your QAQC data. Conventions are really important with oriented core so that you're always measuring clockwise versus counterclockwise or referencing the bottom of the hole versus the top of the hole and some kind of digital collection system that handles those conventions for you is is great when uh, you have especially when you have more than one person collecting that information
1: yeah it really takes the human error out of it
3: yeah for sure it's it's quite handy and it's it's pretty fast as well when it comes to visualizing that data, you know, there's a slew of different stereo net programs out there where you can plot your data up on stereo nets, as well as 3D modeling programs such as LeapFrog, where you can model that data. I love using LeapFrog when I'm showing the drillers what's going down because it's it's always visually impressive and it, it means a lot more to them than... Like if I showed them a stereo net, they'd just like throw me in the lake or whatever. So, so we use that a fair amount. In my opinion, I'm still waiting for a really good stereo net structural analysis program from a data view. There's lots of good stereo net programs out there, but most of them are very difficult to integrate with modern databases.
1: In an ideal future for you, if you're dreaming really big, what are you hoping the oriented core data space could look like?
3: This may sound a little bit cliche or whatever. You know, no matter how far that this technology advances in terms of being able to measure the orientation of structures in the subsurface, all this technology is just a tool. And the quality of the data you're getting from that technology is only as good as the people that are utilizing it in the first place. In my view, and that's sort of Rogue's mission in all aspects of exploration is is get systems and procedures in place so that you're collecting great data, you have the capability of analyzing and QAQCing that data while the program's still happening so that you can address systematic errors and random errors as they're occurring and continually strive to improve your data set as the program continues. You know, that's an ideal world for me in terms of what technologies might be emerging to, to uh, facilitate that sort of thing. To me, it really comes down to properly designed data models and database systems to, to properly collect that information and analyze it, you know, centralized data sets uh, fully digital data collection, the core imagery imaging systems; those to me are critical these days in terms of documenting your core and going back and and QAQCing and troubleshooting your data sets, and the ability to merge those images with your downhole logs, your geochemical assays, et cetera, et cetera, is is pretty critical.
1: Once again, that was Chris Gallagher from Rogue Geoscience. Thanks again to Chris, Rohana, and Federico for sharing your expertise. I learned a lot about structural geology data and technology. Thank you for joining us for this podcast series. It's been an absolute pleasure to produce and host, and hopefully we'll have more for you in the future. Join us for next week's finale episode with Dick Sillitoe and Ann Thompson. Feel free to share any comments or insights you may have with us using the hashtag #DiscoveryToRecovery. This podcast was produced by Nicole Dusset and Sequent with post-production done by Avomedia at avomedia.ca. Editing support from Ann Thompson, Hallie Keevil, Ashley Lockyer, and Megan Booker. Our music is Confluence by Eastwinds. Thanks for sticking with us.